Welcome, welcome to episode 29 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And actually, it's not all about Ask Paul Kirtley on this episode, it's really Ask Ray Goodwin. So welcome, welcome to episode 29, where, as I say, I have Ray Goodwin, my, my friend and colleague Ray has joined us to answer some questions specifically about canoeing and expedition paddling and all things canoe related. Uh, those of you that watch the show and listen to the show will know that Ray has been going to come on and some of you have been so kind as to send in some really good questions and we'll get onto those very, very shortly. But the reason Ray's here right now is to mark the publication of the second edition of his great book, Q. The book. The book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Mr. Kirtley on the cover. Fantastic. Yeah. And I didn't pay him anything for that. So. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's, uh, it always amuses me because the, the actual photograph is so tranquil. And yet, uh, I saw that shot first thing in the morning in Canada on, when we were on the French River. And I knew where I wanted the canoe. So Paul's out there in this beautiful still morning and I'm shouting, left a bit, right a bit. No, no, left, left, left. And I had to put him through the, put Paul composing through the, the yeah, picture. composing the picture. And I just took three photographs because I knew exactly where I wanted. But it rather broke up the calm of the morning. Uh, it so, works though, it works, it's a great photo and yeah. it's even better now that it's made the, the front cover of yeah. the book. So Ray, um, a lot of people do already know who you are and certainly people who follow me and follow the show know you either because they knew about you anyway or they know about our association, the fact that we work together. But for those people who don't know you, could you say a few words about your background in paddling yeah. and without you know doing a sort of autobiography but just just for no, people it's, to know uh, the context of where we're coming from with the questions that we're going to yeah. answer so. well the the i started in my career um really in the mountains and I've, I've spent my whole working life in the outdoors did a few years as a teacher but in my 30s i started paddling um taking kayaking and sea kayaking and then late in my 30s, started paddling canoe, and it really inspired me, both in terms of something that had come from the mountains, which is to do big journeys. And I just saw all these possibilities in Britain, met up with some really good people, did some amazing trips, uh, including the first circumnavigation of Wales by any paddle, paddle boat. 25 years later, it's still not repeated. Uh, and I just loved teaching it, coaching it, guiding canoes, and, and just traveling. So th that's really what I'm about. Highly qualified in my field. Mm. First coach to get level yeah, five in three, three, dis disciplines. three disciplines. But past my sell-by date in whitewater kayak, I can, I can assure you. <laughs> but it brings a massive experience to what I'm doing in mm. canoe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been questioned and pushed and challenged all along the way. And I don't just come from a canoe background. So when I'm talking about rivers, you know, everything from the Grand Canyon of the Colorado to rivers in Nepal coming off of the Everest region. So and those were done in kayak. I've sea kayaked extensively. So all that brings to bear on how I think the, the canoe works in its environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. And Ray was recently on my main Paul Kirtley podcast. And so for those of you that are interested in learning more about those adventures and that more about that background and more about Ray's approach to those sorts of adventures, then you can have a listen to that. And I'll put a link in the, in the show notes to the show, but we have quite a few questions to answer, Ray. Okay. Uh, people have been very generous with the sending the questions in. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll crack on with those and, um, Feel free to answer them as, as briefly or as expansively as you wish. Okay. okay. Um, and these are in no particular order. They're just the order that they are in my, uh, in my notebook that they've ended up. So first question is from, I'm going to put this on so I can read this a bit more easily. Because a few of them came in from Twitter, which is good, but the tweets are a little bit 
hard to read. So this is from Tim Barton, and Tim asks, um, what are your thoughts on inflatable kayaks and canoes? Are they worthwhile for people with limited storage? <sighs> I mean, you've, you've hit one of those hot ones because um, I think the advent of sit-on, sit-on top kayaks, the advent of inflatable canoes is is brilliant in one area in that it gives people very easy access to water. But when folk were coming into sea kayaks, into the specialist boats and into canoes, it was very evident to them that they had a problem with controlling and sorting things out. And so people would tend to go and gain experience in a club environment or go on a course. Whereas with an inflatable, you can jump on, on that so easily and make it go in a particular direction. So that's fantastic. But all of a sudden you can find yourself in an environment that you have no experience of and worse still, no understanding of. Um, and we see this on Llintegid, on Bala Lake, this time of year, you know, we get a hot day, uh, like this last weekend, and you'll see people in inflatables, no buoyancy aids or PFDs, no life jackets, they're in t-shirts and shorts, but the water is at winter temperature. It hasn't really started to warm up. And if they end up, by some mistake, ending up in the water, they're going to be hammered by cold shock in the first instance. So they could be gasping for breath and trying to swim. Um, and they haven't got long in the water. So I have sort of mixed thoughts about them. You know, if as long as you understand that you've got to go and get some experience around people that understand, and that doesn't mean buying instruction from the likes of myself, you don't necessarily have to go on a course, but you need to be around people who understand that environment because you can get yourself into a really serious place without you even realizing it's serious. Um, the, the other side of that coin, I had a, a couple guys who did the most amazing first descent of a river um, or their aim was to, to go to Iran and start a river as high as they could up in the snow fields and start walking down and then to jump into the uh, inflatables and do as much of the river as they could um, and in, in fact they ran into a few problems uh, with military zones so they ended up cycling the last part of the route and they had an incredible time um, but they made a point of getting some instruction with myself um, talking to other people, trying to get some experience of what they were about to do. So yeah, great, you know, I think it's, it's fantastic. Just bear in mind that you're going into an environment that you can access so easily and you don't understand. But other than that, <laughs> they're great fun. Yeah. And that's Tom and Leon you're talking about. Oh, it? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm full of admiration for yeah. them. I mean, if uh, I had the time and energy, I would have loved to have been on that trip yeah. with them. I mean, what they did, and you know, it's people with vision, seeing an adventure and seeing, well, how are we going to do it? And they, they couldn't have learned how to kayak it in the given time, they didn't have the experience. But with the safety background, and you know, being pretty switched, switched on guys, they could safely do that journey. I think they had one or two little interesting yeah. times. And I think where it got, where it got a little bit hairy, they decided to come off the river. Didn't oh, they? absolutely. So yeah, I think so. But so, I, think, I think it's important what you said, because a lot of people look at flat water as safe and they yeah. look at moving water as dangerous and they'll go. But it, actually, I'm, I'm really glad you started off with the point about going on a warm, sunny day, going on what seems like calm, safe water, because yeah. that's where they may get into serious difficulties. At oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we did have somebody disappear on Bala Lake. Divers had to go in and, mm. and it was exactly that. No buoyancy aid, cold shock, and they just sank. Um, and there's, there's absolutely, it's needless, it's mm. needless in something that it should just be pure fun. Um, and it, it's, it's, yeah, it's environment. And I, I think, you know, I'm going to be coming back to that quite a few times in this mm. is about understanding the environment rather than necessarily being able to twiddle or paddle. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Next question. This is a slightly left field one, as far as I'm concerned anyway, but I think I understand where he's coming from with this or why, what motivates him to ask the question. So this is from Richard. He's in the UK and his question is, um, he's wondering about living and sleeping in an open canoe on the water. <laughs> <laughs> Any um, tips? Um, and he says he's most, mostly he's wants to know about arranging 
sleeping kit in a canoe. And I, I, I my person, he hasn't said why, because again, it's Twitter, it's quite a short question, yeah. but my personal view is that he's probably worried about, well, he probably wants to canoe in places where maybe land access is a bit of an issue, and maybe he's thinking, well, if I just sleep in the canoe, I don't have to yeah, trespass. Yeah. So, um, which is, you know, which is fair enough, but um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. It's, um, I have been asleep in a canoe. Um, in fact, several times when I've been paddling tandem, the front person, the bow paddler, has often thought I was asleep in the back of the boat. <laughs> um, and, but I've, I've done some pretty big, big journeys where I've actually nodded off while I've been paddling, sort of 18 hours into a paddling day, and the conditions are good. So, but I've never deliberately slept in the bottom of a canoe. And there's a side of me that goes, I'm not particularly keen on that um, for myself because it would mean I would be lying under several pieces of wood and should I manage to capsize in the night? No, no reason why I should, but then I'm actually part of the boat. I'm in a sleeping bag under bits of wood, so I would be, be quite wary about doing that without making some alteration in the boat. Um, and then the other side of that is if, if, you know, if you've got rain, then unless you've got a really good way of keeping the water out of the boat, it will collect in the bottom. Mm -hmm. Uh, as simple as, and so if you're on the bottom of the boat, that's going to be a pretty wet sp spot, even with a, a thermores or some form of matting underneath you, it's, it's going to be a damp place. So I've never really considered it, but then every now and again, somebody talks about it and I think maybe once in my life I ought mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. And apparently to be a true Canadian, you must have made love in a boat at some stage, <laughs> but I would have thought that was more unstable than sleeping there. Yeah, um, Although those old Peterborough canoes are quite heavy, weren't they? Maybe yes, yeah. I'm not going any further than that, Paul. <laughs> yeah, we weren't to discuss this side of matters. All right, fair enough. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's possible, but I would just be very careful and think about um, the consequence of, of actually turning the boat over in the night. So if you have nightmares and you jump up and around a lot in the, in, at night, I wouldn't do it. That would be my advice. Mm, okay, okay. And... and I mean, uh, what about camping around? I mean, it's easier in Scotland, isn't it? Yeah, in Scotland, the law's fairly clear on that. And, you know, any wildland you can stay. Um, whereas in England and Wales, really, there is no right. To, you know, you might, you can have access land, particularly on hills, where you have a right to cross that land. But there are a lot of restrictions on that. I mean, it's reasonable, but you've got no right to camp on it. and near you know all river banks are going to be owned so my policy in england and wales has been if i'm doing a longer journey and it's just me one one or two other people we pick what appears to be a very quiet spot with no obvious path fishing path come in quietly don't make a lot of fuss make sure we leave absolutely everything immaculate in the morning and go again and very often we're gone very early indeed mm -hmm. um, because there is no ingrained right to be there but most landowners if there's only a small group most are okay mm. yeah it's about being respectful at the end oh of the very day, much yeah. so all right next question oh coming thick and fast and this is from Quixotic Geek. <laughs> and she's based down in Kent. And the question there is um, for you is when paddling, be it kayak or canoe, I get pain in my forearms or wrists. Is this the result of poor technique or just an indication I need more time on the water? And she's included a photo there from the Medway in Kent, which should appear on the screen at some point while yeah. I'm reading this question. So your thoughts there, Ray? Well, it's rather like a doctor running a diagnosis over the telephone, um, but, it, but it's something I do. I've got a suspicion what it might be, and it's a really sort of uh, technical geekish answer. Um, but I, I, if I was talking to, to you live, I would actually, I'd ask you a couple more questions. The fact that the pain is in the forearm, I would, I'd be interested if it's actually the tendons that are causing the problems. If, if it is, and that's where you would normally have pain from, 
um, and it would be the tendonitis, tenosynovitis, I think is the technical term for it. And the tendons run in tubes. And because your wrist flexes in quite a lot of situations within paddle sport, if you're doing that constantly, and particularly if you've got a, a strong grip, so for me, I used to suffer from it because I would, from January through to March, I would be spending a lot of time in Scotland ice climbing, winter mountaineering and Scottish hills, and I wouldn't be paddling at all. And then when I got back on the water, normally it would be in April, I'd start doing sea kayak trips with a kayak paddle, so a double grip. Now, in April, very often the, the waters are, you know, you can get calm days, you can get stunning days, but very often I was out in stormy conditions, so I was just going out on my days off. So I'm over gripping because it's start of the season, it's cold. And that really used to flare my wrists up because I was starting off with some heavy paddling. And to the extent I'd get the pain here, get inflammation, and you could actually hear the tendons creak as you flex the wrist. Now there are all sorts of answers in kayaking. Start off gentle, which mm. never really appealed to me. Uh, keeping the wrist warm, so I would use pogies, little gloves like on a, a motorcycle that fit onto the paddle, and then you slide your hands into. Short neoprene ones were my preferred ones, because I could get in and out easily. So keeping the wrist warm and changing the angle on the blades because we used to have, instead blades weren't uh, 90 degrees, they'd be about 80. Um, and now I'm sea kayaking, I'm down to a, an angle of 45 degrees between the two blades. Now that means I have to flex my wrist less. I have paddle shafts that are offset, they change the angle of the wrist. And again with canoe, the only time I've really come across tendonitis in a canoe then it's been that somebody's been overdoing the J-stroke. So if it's if you're paddling in the back of the boat and you're steering with a J-stroke, particularly with a T-grip paddle, if you're cranking your paddle all the way over, there's an immense stress onto your wrist. And, and I've seen people get tendonitis there, not often. So moving your knees to your paddling side. Is that because they're just gripping it too tight? They're gripping it too tight, the yeah. There's the, two. the top of the J. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things in my J-stroke, as I come through, I mean, this is technical stuff for the, for the non-paddlers, but it's one of the foundation strokes. It's a very efficient stroke for changing from power into steering without letting go of the water. It's why most of us use it for our straightforward travel. We have other steering strokes that are more powerful for steering, but it's an efficient transition. And as you flick your wrist down, my wrist actually comes from the top of the paddle and slides across the face of the paddle and that removes a lot of the stress in in the first place so my first instinct is it's going to be a tendon problem but i don't know you know without talking to you you could send me an email or two and you know may, we'll, we'll explore that further but that would be my suspicion hmm. okay so very technical that very sorry technical. <laughs> no no that's what that's what people want to know it's all solvable mm. that though mm. well that's good that's reassuring yeah. Um, and even, you know, send a video to Ray if you can. You know. that, that would actually yeah. be the best. If you can get some video of yourself paddling and then a few more things about the symptoms, I can talk about it. But the number of times I meet people, I had a guy the other week who said, oh, he didn't do a J-stroke because he'd broken his wrist. So I actually got him to do a J-stroke. And the moment I saw him doing it, I realised he was stressing his wrist unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with a, 10 minutes of instruction, it, it was sorted. At the end of the day, he turned around and he said, that's easy. And that's the whole point with the strokes. We're not trying to make life, we do them because they make our life easier. Yeah. Cool. All right, this is a good one. So this is from Al, Al Gerling. And his question is about back paddling canoes. And he says, thank you for the enjoyable and informative Q&A series. And as someone who started canoeing in the 80s, I was directed towards the excellent books and films by Bill Mason for guidance and instruction. As a result, my paddling style is based on those books and films and involves a lot of back paddling to slow the boat down to better position yourself when descending white water. Not exclusively, of course, there are times when vigorous forward paddling is required too. He says though, I've noticed that this style of paddling seems to have fallen out of fashion and I certainly don't see so many examples of it now. I'd like to know if you teach this at all or has it been relegated in favour of a more aggressive kayak paddling style? Many thanks, Al. 
Okay, so that's that's an interesting one because the Bill Mason books in particular, uh, more influential the books on me than the films, but Bill's very, very much a hero of mine. And his book was a major inspiration for mine. You know, I just felt there was more to tell than, than when Bill was there. Um, and, and just the idea of sequences of photographs, I owe, owe so much that inspiration. And the other weekend, uh, Becky Mason, his daughter, who appears as a young child in those films, mm. um, was it Ross on Why? We were, we were guests of the association at the same time. So my daughter... That's uh, Open Canoe Association. Open Canoe Association. Mm. Um, so I got to paddle with Becky, chat with Becky. You know, I've known her for some years now. So uh, I use both aggressive forward and reverse paddling. And I think two things. When I, when I started in the canoe, I think a lot of the people who were teaching me really wanted to massively emphasize the, the difference between paddling a kayak, which tends to be done under aggressive forward speed in hard conditions, uh, and, and paddling a canoe. And they basically, you know, were telling us to move forward in the canoe, to do everything in a rapid slowing down, which was all right in some rapids. But as you said in your question, that's why I like your question. You said, but there are occasions when you need to go forwards and be aggressive. And I was, I was by my nature, because I wasn't afraid of the water, I was trying to run some very hard rapids in canoes. And what I was finding was the method that they were selling me didn't work. And then I started blending what I do in a kayak, that aggressive speed, but becoming good at doing, well, the, this reverse paddling to, to maneuver. So I teach a blend of both. Um, and one of the things I try to do very much is explain to people why that, that reverse defensive style works brilliantly. And one of my local rivers, the Tweran, there is one bend and one eddy that if I get people to slow and do reverse, as you suggest, then I never, ever have a problem. Um, and in fact, on the, the eddy, it really helps break up a very long rapid. We have somebody stood in the eddy with a paddle, and as the person slows the speed and moves the boat towards the eddy while still facing downstream, they use the paddle as a hook, rather like on an aircraft carrier. Never had anybody in the last 10, 12 years miss the eddy. Having said that, particularly on film, in the next week, somebody's going to miss it and cause a real problems. You know, that's the nature of the beast. Just hope it's not me. Um, so I feel it's still got a large part of it. And when I'm teaching the British canoeing award system, one of the things in the syllabus is people have to be able to demonstrate it. And when I'm training people for an assessment, I say, get it sorted so well that it becomes a natural part of your paddling, not something that an assessor asks you to do. Lay out your stall. So, yeah, I, I, I think in a British culture, it's easier from the kayaking background to teach people to go forwards. But to be an all-round paddler, you should be able to use both. So yes, it's still there. And just, is there any difference, for example, in the style of paddling that you might need on the rivers that, that Bill Mason was paddling? Uh, because I've seen some films, for example, I think it was maybe a black... It was on that This Is Canoeing video DVD yeah. that you were part of, that Justine did. There was, I think it might have been a black feather trip. Yeah where they were doing a lot of back paddling on those rivers. And is that just a choice that those guides have made or are there particular types or styles of rivers that well, require I think, more I think the, the problem is if you only paddle one style of river, you only need one sort of technique. Mm. And a lot of people paddle British rivers in low water. And the moment you start hitting volume more, then, then you just need a huge range of techniques. Mm. So, you know, beware of learning for a specific type of river. And, you know, we, we paddle very, very many different types. And something like the Spay in Scotland is continuous. Once you get past Granton, it just flows. Mm -hmm. And there, to be honest, a lot of the time you're doing things on forward speed mm. um, because you're making very big moves across current. Also, it's easier to teach the clients. So I'm being not lazy, but being realistic what I can actually get them to achieve mm -hmm. in the, the time we've got with them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I can do some river trips, never done a, a reverse uh, paddling move across the river at all and then other trips and it really is very useful and one of my local rivers the Tweran is very narrow very rocky a uh, couple some grade three rapids um, quite a lot of grade two but lots and lots of rock and lots of speed in the water mm. and reverse paddling on some of the moves the eddies are, are very 
are small. So being able to slow your boat and slide sideways into an, into an eddy, into the calm water at the side, makes life a lot, early, a lot easier. So no, you, you, you don't see it as much in the UK. It was, the problem was it was overemphasized, I think, uh, 25 years ago. And now it's a little bit underplayed, but it's still part of the repertoire. Next one. Thank you for the question, Al. All right, this is a change gear a lot here. So from Al who has been canoeing since the 80s to somebody who's a, a beginner, and this is from Alex. And I think he's in North America from the use of language, but you, you don't say Alex. So we're gonna, I think we should assume that Alex is in North America, Yeah. but he may not be. So his question is, um, I have been camping, hiking and bushcrafting for about two years and I'm planning a multi-day canoe trip this fall. I was wondering if there were any tips or advice you could give me as this is the first time going out on a canoe and do not know what to expect. Thank you. Love the videos. <laughs> so different, different end of the spectrum there. I, I, it comes back to environment, simple as, and it, it really doesn't matter whether it's North America or uh, this country. If you have no experience with the canoe, the trouble is you don't know what can go wrong. And, and it's, it's quite interesting, you know, I'm, I'll go out on my local lake in cold weather with my daughter, who is just reached six, and um, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I don't presume I'm not going to fall in. So if I'm going to cross the lake, if I'm going to be out from shore, I am kneeling down. And, you know, a lot of beginners will find that very uncomfortable um, and go, I'll sit on the seat. But you're incredibly vulnerable on the seat. I know when I can sit on the seat and, you know, when we've done stuff in Scotland, uh, not in Scotland, but even in Scotland yeah. on the spay, on the flat water sections, I'm sitting yeah. on the seat. The boat's heavily laden. I'm in the company of other boats. Same in uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's it's... The problem is, if you have no experience of the canoe, you really don't know what can go wrong and how very simple mistakes can be extremely costly. If you are going to do it on your own, then really you've got to think seriously about being within swimming distance of the shore at all times. Um, so when I'm talking to a beginner in this country, I'll say, go and paddle on canals, because then it, or easy flowing rivers. Um, always wear uh, a buoyancy aid. Most of the fatalities we've had in this country in recent years have been people without any flotation device. They've fallen in the water in very easy flat water situations and disappeared. And you know, it's traumatic for families, su survivors. Um, it's, you know, I don't, canoeing in the wilderness is fabulous. So. Absolute, your ambition is absolutely right, and I meet a lot of people who have that ambition. Go and get some lessons, um, I would suggest. Join a club, go out with people who know what they are, so that what they're about, so you can begin to understand the environment. Yes, some basic paddle skills so you can control the boat. And that'll make it a lot more pleasurable. As oh, well. massively, I mean, massively. Because if you can't make the boat go straight for starters, then you're just going to struggle. Yeah. for two days or three days or however yeah. long you're going to go yeah. out. If you've got any sort of headwind, it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, it, so just, just being able to enjoy it. And yeah. the, the safety thing, I think, is the key thing. I Absolutely. Think and uh, unless you have a dream, I mean, we go back to the guys who went to Iran. Mm. You know, they had a dream of doing something. They had no skill with water. So how do we go about going into that environment with some degree of safety, some, you know, some understanding of what's going mm. on? And they did probably the absolute minimum, but they were pretty switched on guys. Now, if you're outdoor, door type, and you're doing lots of things and you can think, then you're the right sort of person to go there. But you st the trouble is there are things you won't know that you don't know. Mm. I could be American Secretary of State without coming, <laughs> couldn't I? Known unknowns. And, yeah. Well, that's a philosophical point that most people didn't understand about the, the, the nature of knowledge, but we'll not go there. Today. No, no, no. But I think it's across the board, whether it's, you know, bushcraft skills, survival skills, specific, you know, canoe yeah. skills. There's a, a lot of things that you don't know you don't know when you start. You, yeah. you have a certain perception of something and you want to yeah. do that thing, but you don't know the detail around it. And the, you, you don't even know that that detail's there 
and particularly when it comes to the risks. Yeah. Um, as I said before, I think a lot of people have the perception that flat water is safer than moving water, but it's no, not, not in the slightest. No. Um, and you know, don't don't take this as don't do things. But I would seriously, if you're a beginner, particularly if you're alone, you know, if, if I, I I'd met somebody the other weekend who wants to do a trip on their own and they're going to build up to it, but they've gone and done very simple things on canal systems, on very simple flat rivers where they could swim to the side and they had, that didn't have a consequence. If you're in the wilderness and you've swum to the side and your boat's out there and all your kit's out there, you have a major problem. So yeah think around it and think of solutions don't this is not don't go out there don't go canoeing in the wilderness this is do it but get yourself into a situation where you can do it with eyes wide open mm. and i and i look forward to hearing about your progress on it yeah think, yeah think think about what could go wrong and then think about what you've got in your arsenal to, to yeah. mitigate that so falling into cold water you know having a pfd or a buoyancy aid change of clothes all of these sorts of things where you mitigate the scenarios you might be yeah. able to find yourself in. And an air of reality to this, all of us uh, that have been in paddle sport a long time have done something silly on flat water and ended up falling in. And that's us. Um, but where we've done that tends to be without consequence. The reason we've fallen in is we've been too chilled out, too relaxed, we've got plenty of company, we're close to something. But if I'm crossing a lake with my daughter in the boat, or if I'm crossing a lake on my own, I'm kneeling down, mm -hmm. and I understand consequence. And Ray's doing a very good, very bad job here of plugging his book. You should also get a copy of Ray's book. <laughs> 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 because there are a lot of the basic stuff in terms of considerations yeah. are in there. So. Yeah, and the, the book does one thing, and being around people who understand that environment, who are canoeists, who've done trips, um, really, really key. Yeah. Steve Bailey, who you know from Windermere a couple yeah. of years ago, he and Sally came and did our Windermere Expedition Canoeing Skills course, and his question is, uh, as you know, arthritis in my knees and ankles makes kneeling in a canoe for extended periods quite difficult. I wonder if you have any experience of using what I think is called a canoe saddle, which I think would take some of the weight off my painful joints, but still keep the center of gravity low in the boat, allowing for better stability and control compared to using the seat. Okay. Um, I do. I have reservations about saddles, particularly with traditional canoes, because uh, you normally... explain what a saddle yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, most saddles nowadays uh, are made out of shaped foam, and you'll sit astride them in a kneeling position. They have really nice, comfortable cups to put your knees into. Um, the knees are spread fairly wide on them. Uh, the feet may be on footrests, rather like in a kayak, the ones that you can slide to get them tight enough. And there, there are various, a lot of variations on that. Uh, and in specialist canoes, which are designed for paddling very much like a kayak in much harder whitewater situations, they work brilliantly. They, they make you part of the boat. People add straps that come across the thighs, um, other systems to actually uh, fasten you down into the boat. They all have quick release systems. Uh, they're designed to be able to roll back upright again, these specialist canoes. So that all works well, and it may work, but in, in a traditional canoe, they tend to be wider, and you're fixed in the middle of the boat, so I find that quite awkward. The thing you could consider is what a racing boat, or some of the more specialist boats would do, is instead of uh, having a seat that you can kneel on, they actually have a lower seat. And very much like a very old-fashioned farm tractor seat, a little bucket seat oh, yeah. okay. that, that you yeah. fit into uh, and the fast race boats that I've used or fast touring boats I've used and I went to uh, United States to Minnesota paddled in the boundary waters and that's an interconnected uh, series of lakes that's been the route it's the boundary waters because it's the border of uh, Canada and the United States and one of the canoe routes is actually the border that's how the border was marked it was such an important route Almost exclusively there, people paddle Kevlar canoes. Um, 
they can be as wide and as stable as the plastic canoes that many Brits are uh, familiar with. You don't kneel in any of them. The seats are lower down, you sit in a bucket seat, you use shorter paddles, and it works brilliantly, and they're very, very stable. The whole thing is worked around that. And I, I would consider moving to a system like that, um, lowering the seat, maybe a bucket seat. They even put a, an adjustable footrest in them, which okay. is a bar across there. So you're very much part of the boat again. Um, and I've, I've paddled, you know, fairly straightforward white water in them. The main limitation, <laughs> I've been in a Kevlar boat, I don't want to bounce off rocks. Kevlar itself. Yeah, it's yeah. Kevlar itself. It's a robust material, but it's expensive. I don't mm. want to put dents and cracks in it. So I think my solution would be more to go for a lowering of the seat, look at a footrest system, even look at maybe uh, a bucket seat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have a look at, there's some pictures in the book. I'll mention the book again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting the idea of this now, long last. Um, I have a chat to a few people that import the Kevlar boats. It doesn't mean necessarily you move over to that, but can you get that sort of seat system and have a look at some Kevlar boats and, you know, what part of the system would you have to buy to be able to fit it? Is the plastic now, is the plastic side of your boat too high? But that's, that's the route I would go down rather than a, a foam saddle, to be honest. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. It'll come to me in the end. <laughs> All right, this is from David Adams, who I believe you know was on the... Hi area. Dave. And his question is, can you ask Ray where he got his bug suit from? Um, I did a workshop with Ray at Canoefest on planning an expedition and planned to do the blood vein in 2017 with friends. Reed McLachlan also suggested that bugs on land in August could be a problem, especially in the latter stages of the trip. P.S. Please have a look at Ray's Expedition Axe. It needs some TLC. <laughs> I will do, David. Yes, uh, thank, thank you for that, David. I do appreciate. I'll get, I'll get Ray to dig it out yeah, of yeah. shed later on. No, no, what, what you don't realise, Paul, is I actually sat David up with that because I thought you'd be so embarrassed you'd sharpen it for me. You, ah. you, you, you did a wonderful job on my knife. Like thank you very it. much indeed. I'm going to put the before <laughs> and after. I, I've got, I edit these as well, so... <laughs> I'm going to embarrass Ray. I'm going to put the. Hey, do I look like the sort of guy who's going to be embarrassed? <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Before and after of the knife that yeah. he had that he gave me to sort out. Yeah. Well, I, I did. I did offer the knife. No, no, you did indeed. But the, um, but the best axe one has got to be Norman's axe in, on on the French River. Yeah. Yeah. And that was only I'd given him that the year before. And he left it out all winter in yeah. a tree stump. <laughs> and when we, when we rocked up to his camp, we came up and there is the axe that you'd given him. And it's still in the same tree yeah. stump the whole winter. <laughs> yeah. He's worse than me. I'm going to link to that. I did an article about yeah. how to look after your axe. And that was a prime example. Of <laughs> it was classic. How not to look after Ransford's axe. <laughs> but um, anyway, answer, answer the question. So which, which was? was? <laughs> which was? <laughs> Bug suit. Where did you get it from? Bug suit. And will this um, be a problem on the blood vein in August? We, you know, I've done the blood vein three times now. The first two times, the bugs weren't really a problem at all because I was doing it in September. But we've just done a September trip on it, Paul and myself, and there were mosquitoes around. And there weren't many. And if you get a, a muggy, warm August, there will be more. Mm. And I would certainly have a complete bug suit. Um, and I, I believe mine is the Bug Suit Company. If you look them up online, um, it's a Canadian company. If I was going out in August, I think I might order mine and get it shipped to the UK. And the reason being, the, you're coming to the end of the selling period of bug suits in, in, yeah, in they, Canada. Yeah, they start in May. Yeah, and really, so... They start getting bad in early May in some places. So if a shop yeah. runs out of stock, they're not going to restock in August, or at the end, latter end of August. Um, and I've done that before. I've, I've ordered for, for my partner, Lena. She's badly affected by mosquito or insect bites. She'll, she'll get, just swell up. The, the swelling will uh, uh, spread down the, the arm or across the face. Just uh, one bite, isn't One it? bite for, for Lena. Mm. Uh, quite terrifying. She now has to take stuff with her. Um, it, it's not an, it doesn't, yeah, antihistamines and the like. And the bug suit's great because it's uh, it's not heavy. So on a really warm, muggy day, I end up wearing the trousers because they're just so lightweight. But the material is very tightly woven, so the mosquitoes can't bite through it. 
Uh, they've got cuffs on them and little straps to go under the foot and the cuff tucks down into your boots so they don't get at your ankles. I take a really good pair of leather gloves because they don't tend to get through leather gloves. Uh, they, get, they go through jeans easily, so I would order it in advance. Bug Suit Company, look it up online. If you have a problem with that, send myself or Paul an email yeah. and, and we can sort I'll, that. I'll try and find the link to yeah. the company and put it on the show notes yeah. as well on, on my blog. Um, the other thing I would say as well, in my experience, the sizing can be a bit odd as yeah. well because they go from small to extra, 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 extra large and the gradations are a yeah. bit small. You know, yeah, the, yeah. the gradation isn't what you'd expect. So no, it isn't. Again, it's worth double checking what size you want and making yeah. sure it all fits and works because yeah. you don't want it too tight either because then you know there's some mesh sections yeah the arms and if it's all too tight they'll bite you through that as well and, so. and the whole point is it's designed for the conditions where mosquitoes are prolific which is yeah. warm muggy days yeah. and so you you need clothing that's very light and sometimes i'll just wear a shirt and sometimes i don't wear anything underneath, uh, yeah. underneath them other than yeah. shorts shorts yeah Oh, chap. Yeah. But other than that, <laughs> it'd just be me underneath. <laughs> and then other days I can fit other clothing either under or over it. Because um, it's surprising what they will bite through. And it does make for a better experience if, if you can get rid of one of the major sources of irritation. Yeah, it does. It All right, this is about the River Spey. This is from Gavin Henry, who was on a course with me recently. Hi, Gav. And his question is about the River Spey trip that we do. Um, what skills are needed for the River Spey trip and how can he get those? <laughs> Book 20 days with me in advance of it, you'll be fine. <laughs> no. um, okay, what do you need? The, really, it's in terms of the, the paddling skills, and we have a sort of top-up day before we go down the river, so we have a whole day practicing skills. But you're going to be paddling tandem. Um, if you're in the back of a boat, you need to be able to do, at the minimum, you need to be able to steer the back of the boat. You need to be able to do a ruddery-type stroke to turn one way. You need to do a sweep stroke to be able to turn the other way useful if you can do a j-stroke it's more efficient but you, you want to be able to control the back of the boat and give it forward power um, if you're going to be in the front of a boat you need to be able to give power but more than that you need to be able to do two things you need to be able to turn the front of the boat so you can aim it where you want to go but you've also got to be able to stop the front turning so if the boat starts going away you don't want to go, you've got to be able to stop that. Now, the strokes you use to do that are identical. So um, if you, you can look it up in, there's a very good book we can recommend, Is isn't there? Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I've Bill May, said, yeah, have you heard about that? Yeah. second edition. Yeah, yeah, now, second, second edition, that's the one. Right. Are, you, are you on the cover or something? No. No. Um, but as a minimum at the front, uh, a draw stroke, so it's a stroke to take the boat that way, which will also stop it from going the other way and a thing called a cross-bow draw, um, which will take the boat in the other direction. So if you've got those two strokes, and any knowledge of white water whatsoever is extremely useful. The, you know, what we find is those first days, for those who've got minimum experience, it's quite, uh, not overwhelming, it's but it's coming, it's a steep learning curve, and we've got to look after them really well. Um, but the, the spay is nice. You alluded to it before, I think, when you said it gets you get to Granton and it goes yeah. downhill. Um, the downhill in terms of descent, not downhill yes. in terms of quality. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, I'm getting to that stage. <laughs> in my mind, it's almost like there's two there's two stages. I mean, it drops a couple of hundred meters overall, doesn't yes. it? Yes. But the first day and a half is what 20 meters yeah something like that and then the next couple of days is is the, rest. Is the major loss in so height. you've almost got you've got a sort of two-stage yeah. profile and that's nice because there are a few little tricky bits on the first day and a half but yeah. overall it kind of gets you it into builds the, up into yeah the zone. and so we do a day on the the lock to start off with to warm up at lock inch we might yeah. do a bit on flow at the top if we do yeah. necessary and then we start off and it's relatively gentle yeah and also it's the beginning of the river so there's less volume in it as well generally yeah. so you've got a build-up of gradient and volume as you go down the river so it's brilliant for us to take people because it's it, yeah you, you build as you go yeah and by the time you get to the end it's, it's a, you you feel 
a lot more competent and confident than you do four or five days earlier so that's one of the reasons we do yeah. it as a trip yeah and i think you know if you're going to get out and practice beforehand if you've done very little it's really about maneuvering the boat because we can we can top up the pushing it forward and giving you more efficiency in your forward stroke but the more you can turn that boat stop it turning take it sideways and generally move it around very quickly at either end then you've got a foundation for us to build on and it's going to be easier for you your learning curve isn't as big or as steep yeah so but how, we'll look after you yeah. so people can get experience i mean they can come and do an expedition canoeing skills course with us in the in the lake district yeah that's what that's aimed at beginners um in terms of paddling certainly so you can get the basic paddle strokes and, and maneuvering the, and there's a lot more in that course as well but in terms yeah. of what you'd need for the spay it's there in that course and there's a lot more in that course and then you've got all the campcraft and mm. navigation and everything there as well you could do some private tuition with ray yeah or you know one or one or two days probably will be yeah enough. i generally reckon if you haven't done much two days is about right yeah it gets you going in the right you know the right direction yeah. or find uh, a local instructor to do a couple yeah. of days um, or find a club where they're actually interested in canoeing, not just kayaking. No disrespect to kayakers, but there are a lot of canoe clubs that are called canoe clubs, but they largely just kayak. Yes. So find a club where people actually like to go open boating as well, or if there's a section within that club that yeah. like going open boating and, and get some basic uh, skills from them. Um, so. And one of the things I would say, whatever you're told at a club, the, the bow paddler, the front paddler in a canoe is really critical once you get onto white water or heading into a, a strong headwind because they can do very quick things at the front to line up the front of the boat or to stop it moving in the wrong direction. And you really need a bow paddler that can do that and that really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Good. But I look forward to seeing you. Well, Gav lives up in that part of Scotland anyway, lives in Aberdeenshire. So okay. Look, oh, massive opportunities to get out. So this is from, next one, is from Peter Forrester. And he's actually coming on our spay trip this, yeah. this year, on one of our spay trips. And his question, if I can just get this the right size, his question is, um, I recently had to sell my canoe due to the fact that I was struggling to store and transport it so barely got to use it. Thus my ability as a paddler has begun to suffer. Um, do you have any advice on storing and transporting canoes in the UK and how do you arrange getting back to your vehicle after a trip? Hope that makes sense. Well I'll throw in stuff with think, think about that before you do your trip. but. <laughs> <laughs> getting back to your vehicle <laughs> just get to the end oh. yeah but anyway i'll leave the um, okay but I'm gonna, i'll leave the getting back uh, <laughs> for the moment we'll just get onto the river for the moment if you've had problems with storage already then there's going to be no easy solution unless you're a member of a club some clubs uh, arrange joint storage so you can leave your, your boat in the, the club storage that's one very good solution um, other than that, I, if I've got the name right, and I may not here, uh, you can get pack kayaks, and they're, they're some really, really good quality ones on the market. They're not cheap, the best of them, but basically they're the skin of a, of, of a canoe or a kayak, whichever. A friend of mine bought two uh, sea kayaks, and they, once they were all taken apart, they would each fit into a rucksack-sized holdall, and he was flying off to Greece with them and going sea kayaking in Greece. And he offered me the opportunity once, and unfortunately I was working. Uh, I'm really gutted because he never offered again. Uh, Don, if you're out there and listening, I'm still interested. So there are some, and I've known people, the blood vein that we've done, I've known some people paddle that in the, uh, the pack canoe version. And, and it's a tight skin, you erect a, a framework inside of it, um, they become very rigid. I'm not going to want to paddle other than very easy white water in them. You know, flat water, they're absolutely fine. Easy white water, you don't want anywhere really where you're going to be scraping them. But they are pretty robust. Mm. So I think that is a, a real solid uh, possibility. Mm -hmm. And if I was stuck somewhere where, or, you know, even flying into some really remote places where they, they don't have a facility to take canoes like a float plane on mm -hmm. the outside, then these uh, pack canoes are pretty pretty good 
Um, and you can get some decent, well, decent quality and decent shapes out of them. Mm. And they perform pretty well identical to a rigid canoe of any other material. Mm. So that's one alternative. Um, I would also look at that club storage situation. Then getting back to your vehicle, well, there are a whole number, <laughs> number of possibilities here. Um, I've done trips where I've arranged for a taxi at the end of it, uh, where there's a bus service. In Canada, you're organising it with an outfitter, but in the UK, yeah, bus services, taxis, and if it's a... Just to be clear, you're not taking your boat on the bus, you're going back no, to your no. car, yeah. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> going back to get my car. Um, and in Scotland, for some of the, the trips like the River Spey and the Great Glen and a few of the other trips, there are people there, outfitters, who will rent canoes to you, uh, but they will also organise the shuttle. You know, you can uh, go to their depot, leave your vehicle, your stuff for the end of the trip, they'll run you to the start. So there's certainly a possibility there. Um, I've done a lot of hitchhiking in my times. When, when I started as a climber, in, uh, you know, right the way through from when I was 16, I was hitching all over the country to go rock climbing. And it was just the normal part of what I did. So when I started paddling, if we only had single vehicle, then hitching back to the start was fairly normal. Uh, I had a kayaking trip in the Alps where on the very first river we ran, we got to the bottom of it. And, I had a pair of shorts, a pair of flip-flops and a t-shirt, it was a sunny day, put those on. Uh, kept my buoyancy aid with me to say I was a paddler, not sure it made a lot of difference, but it told people why I was hitching. Stuck my thumb out and the very first car picked me up and ran me back to the start because it was out at a single road. Next river, my mate has a go and two cars went past him and I said, this is no good mate, you're no good at this. So he said, go on. So I stuck my thumb out, first car, a Mercedes picked me up, took me to the start. <laughs> so I was really on a flyer. I got my comeuppance later on that trip when it was my turn and the road didn't follow the river. It went over a high pass, um, it gained about 500 feet in height above the river to get over this high point. And I just got sorted for the hitch into my t-shirt, into my shorts, into my trainers and the skies opened and I was stood there in a huge downpour and not one driver was in the slightest interested in picking me up. Soggy uh, hitchhiker. Yeah, so I had an hour and a half in the days where I used to run of running back to my car, yeah? Nowadays, it'd be, I think I'd stay for the hitch. So hitching, taxis, uh, getting it sorted in for advance. Um, there are all sorts of possibilities. Or finding a friend. If you have friends, yeah. if you have friends, that's good. Yeah, yeah. who's also got a car. But the, the best arrangement of the shuttle, I, I've had it where, you know, we've got to the end and the person's car's parked at the end and just before the end, they've looked at me and said, I've left my car keys in your car at the top. And it's like, oh, great. Yeah. Um, but the best of all was working in Finland and the Finns and the Latvians were arranging a shuttle to the end of the river trip we're going to do in a mixture of languages, including English to include me. And at a certain point, it sounded more like quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> Arranging the shuttle can be quite intimidating. And in three languages, with it's large, beyond me. It's beyond groups, me. Yeah, multiple vehicles. Yeah. Just make sure at least one is at the end and one is at the beginning. And the keys yeah. are going to the end. Yeah. I very often say, if there's a vehicle at the end, show me your keys. <laughs> Excellent. Good. And we can talk more about that in October when you're with us, Pete. Okay, last question. Hurrah! Um, from Chris Rogers. And Chris asks, I paddle as a novice in a Prospector 15 with my family on a very small, slow-moving piece of water in Suffolk. What sort of experience do I need to go to a larger river with rapids and stronger currents? And where and how do I gain this knowledge? Um, and I don't know whether Chris means going to those larger rivers with his family or without his family. And I guess I think, the answer is slightly different depending yeah, on... It, yeah, it is, it is. Um, I, I paddle white water with my daughter and I have done since she's three years old. And in fact, round about that time, I took her on a canal trip and we were on the canal for about 400 metres. And she'd look round, she was in her mum's boat. She looked back at me with some disdain and said, Daddy, where are the rapids? <laughs> I had to point out that on the canal there were no rapids. Um, but I, I take it extremely seriously whenever I take her on white water because, you know, no matter how good I am, I can end up in the water. I, I put a whole level of caution 
again and again on top of what I'm doing when I've got uh, a little one in the boat and a whole way I'm going to react to look after her um, so a lot of thought in that and I would say in the first instance gain experience yourself so you begin to have an understanding of the environment again it's understanding the environment the in the UK the Open Canoe Association is a fabulous way of doing that and I'm taking the children along as well we've just had a major event down at Ross on Wye loads of kids down there my daughter loved it because uh, there are lots of kids to paddle with and a lot of the kids have done big adventures with parents so joining something like the Open Canoe Association going along to appropriate events with the family you'll get lots of advice um, you'll get opportunities maybe to do one thing yourself and mum and kids do another thing swap over on another day um, or get a little bit of instruction uh, you know so that you so OCA is a good way clubs um, get a little bit of instruction but if you book that you know what I say to people really ask the questions make it very clear if you come to somebody like myself and lots of good people out there make it clear that it's about the decision making not just about the maneuvering the maneuvering most people can teach you but it's the decision making if you're going to do it with the family that you really need it's understanding the environment again we, we've come full circle haven't yes, we yeah. um, because what you don't understand is what's going to get you and i'm being cautious with the family uh, but it's great, you know, I've had so much fun with my own daughter, with other kids in white water. It motivates them. It's lots of fun. Um, so I would say do it, but build your own experience as well. Go along and go along with people that know what they're at and they can tell you, yeah, do this, don't do this. Uh, yeah, let them have a go. And uh, yeah, it's fun. Cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Good. Any final thoughts on any of the questions? Anything popped into your head while we've been talking about anything else? Or No, I mean, it, it, it is so much. You know, time and time again, we keep coming back to it. It's understanding the environment. Yes, you need to know how to manoeuvre the boat. You need to know some of the strokes that allow you to manoeuvre the boat. But at the end of the day, it's understanding the environment. Um, and understanding the, the... Well, we all want to be in that environment because it's fabulous. You know, the mix of people, boats and water is just incredible. And, and some of the environments I've paddled in have just been stunning. And that includes lots of places in the UK. Um, but you need to understand it. You underneath, and to be able to, and not to underestimate it. Go and have some fun. Good. And get Ray's book as well. So it is worth getting. It's an excellent book, not just because I'm on the front cover and it's <laughs> one of Ray's best photos on the front cover, but there's yeah. other good stuff in there as well based on decades of canoe experience. Yeah. Um, what's new in the second edition for those that have got the first edition? Well, it's, it's really, it's, I was talking to another writer, a guidebook writer, and I was explaining what was in this one. And there's more on, on how to paddle with children, the, thing, the do's and don'ts with children. There's more on how to uh, create mental maps of rapids, how to create where you look, how you decide where you're looking at any particular time. There's more bits and pieces that have occurred to me over the years, people, because uh, a lot of my customers come with uh, their own ideas and I'll take a bit from this person, a bit from that and my own ideas. And then some really good examples as well of where you can expedition, sort of really trying to be inspirational. You know, it's about uh, inspiring, I think, as well as telling you how to do things. But it's very much, uh, and, and Mark, uh, the, the, the other writer was saying, is it the director's cut? And I was really happy with the first edition. Please, please does anything with that. But I think this is the director's cut. This is the one that I really wanted, mm -hmm. but I didn't know I wanted it at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So how many, it's not just a few extra photos, is it? I mean, there's about- No, no, there's um, 127 extra pages, but spread throughout the book. So you can't just buy a chunk of 27 <laughs> pages. Um, and um, 100 extra photographs. So we've got to be close on a thousand photographs in the mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. because, and, and again, you know, that's the thing with a book in general. I normally got the photographs before I did the writing. Mm. Um, and I've got to, you know, that way the, the, the two things tie together really closely. 
Whereas I think a lot of people have done writing and then tried to illustrate it and get the photographs. Mm. And sometimes taking the photographs has made me reevaluate what I actually do. Mm. Because I go, oh, I didn't realise that. Mm. So I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. And how can they get the book from you directly? Where do they need to go to? Where okay, to the, the, easiest, the easiest way with me is, you know, if you're on Facebook with me, um, then just send me a message on Facebook. The website is ray, uh, raygoodwin.com. No, no gaps in there at all, so raygoodwin.com. There's details on that. Um, and if you really want to, you can get it on Amazon uh, as well. But I don't make as much money. Yeah, mm. but, and that's important. Um, Ray makes like a retail margin on the books if you buy them straight from him, whereas if you get them from Amazon, it's a few pence, really, um, yeah. the, the, the royalty that he gets from Amazon. So, um, but if you do buy the book, make sure you put a review on Amazon for Ray, wherever <laughs> you get it from, because that helps as well. Yeah. So thank you to all of those that have already got books. Thank you very much, uh, Paul. And, uh, Please do get hold of the book if you don't have a copy already. It is excellent. Um, even if it does have a picture of me on the front, it's still worth getting. <laughs> it's better than the last cover. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you to Ray. Thanks for um, your attention. Those of you that have got to the end, listened to the end, watched to the end. All the links to everything that we've talked about, bug suits and books and everything else that we've talked about is going to be in the show notes under episode 29 on uh, under Ask Paul Kirtley on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk and um, this will be out on the usual platforms so if you want to watch it if you've just been listening to it it's going to be on YouTube and my blog and if you want to listen again as a podcast it's on iTunes and SoundCloud as well as on my blog as an audio file so thanks and I will see you on the next episode cheers Thank bye now <laughs>